This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Thanks for joining us for Episode 18 of the Recorded Future podcast. When it comes to North Korea, there are a variety of images that may come to mind. Eccentric, erratic leadership, suffering citizens, isolation from the rest of the global community, and lately, of course, the testing of nuclear weapons and long-range missiles. When it comes to cybersecurity and threat intelligence, North Korea is known for cybercrime, perhaps most notably the WannaCry ransomware and the Sony hack. Our guest today is Priscilla Marucci, Director of Strategic Threat Development at Recorded Future. Her team is responsible for a pair of research reports recently posted to the Recorded Future website, North Korea is not crazy, and North Korea's ruling elite are not isolated. Stay with us. I think there's sort of two threads to the crazy narrative, right? So the first that we sort of emphasized was that North Korea strategically, right, how they approach their relationship with the global community, how they, uh, you know, conduct intelligence operations, right, how they sustain the regime in light of the sanctions, you know, what they do to support their missile program. All of that is very much in line, you know, with this sort of asymmetric strategy, asymmetric warfare strategy that they have which plays off them as a weak state and sort of the non-traditional methods that they can use to both, you know, support their own, you know, goals and gain some leverage in the international community, right? So that's the first thread, that thread that, you know, they're not crazy and they have a strategy and they follow it. The second thread that tends to intertwine with that is the narrative that the Kim family has created internal to North Korea to support their own continued leadership, right, in their dynasty. And I think that's where a lot of the crazy, you know, in quotation marks, comes from. It's this narrative they've developed, you know, since uh, the founding in Kim Il-sung that sort of lays out a destiny, right, narrative that the Kims, you know, saved North Korea, right, and they're destined to lead it. And, you know, there are all these things that they create, perfect golf games, right, um, you know, born on the top of Mount Bektu, which is this um, kind of a famous mountain in North Korea. There is a, a narrative to support their leadership that does have some of that crazy in it. But that is not necessarily the same as how they interact with you know, the rest of the global community. So give us an overview of how they do interact with the rest of the global community when it comes to cyber. Yeah, so when it comes to cyber, um, they have realized that cyber, the cyber realm, right, is an area in which they can exercise, you know, a degree of power, right, and influence um, that they don't have in other more conventional areas. They don't have a huge and powerful standing military, right, that can project force abroad. They don't have a great economy. They don't have a popular culture, right? So a lot of things that, you know, larger countries have, you know, they don't have. And so they've they've realized in their approach to the rest of the world that the cybersphere and space is an area in which they can, you know, achieve some influence and impact, right, on the world. The way they interact in cyberspace is in line with a lot of the other things they do sort of in the real world to support the regime in terms of the criminal component to North Korea. So, you know, we kind of go through in the piece a lot about um, 
how their primary intelligence service called the Reconnaissance General Bureau operate in a much more broad sense um, than most other intelligence services. You know, they do things like assassination attempts, you know, they do bombing attempts, they conduct essentially a broad criminal enterprise, right, in which they engage in illegal drug smuggling and manufacturing, counterfeiting U.S. dollars, and also criminal cyber activity like the WannaCry attack, for example, like the Sony incident, um, like a number of other attacks against South Korean entities from about 2009 to 2013. Um, And so all that is really in line with their strategy, their asymmetric strategy of playing off the few strengths that they have as a small country and really using that to influence and create chaos in the sort of international sphere. And one of the points that your research makes is that this notion that North Koreans are completely cut off from the rest of the Internet uh, may not be the case. That's right. We went in depth to a a data set that we had and, um, you know, we found a couple of things. So one, if we're talking about North Koreans and Internet access, there are two separate Internets in North Korea. There's this first an internal kind of domestic intranet that slightly more people are allowed to have access to um, students, scientists, government officials, etc. You know, are allowed to access this sort of domestic state-run intranet. You know, they have computer labs at universities and things like that um, where they can access that. That's not connected to the global internet. Um, our data was on the usage of the global internet. And among North Koreans, there are a very, very small number uh, of people in the upper ranks of leadership, most trusted leaders in their families, who are allowed access pretty much unfettered, it looks like, uh, to the global internet you know, at large. Um, and that's what we were able to kind of look at and um, profile in this second report. And their use of the internet for the, those handful of people who have unfettered access, their, their usage pretty much mirrors people from around the rest of the world. Yeah, in a lot of ways it does. Um, (laughs) They're actively engaged in many of the same Western and popular social media sites, you know, that we use, like Facebook and Twitter, for example, Instagram, right? They regularly read international news, they stream videos and do online gaming. We were able to see that for these few people anyway, you know, they're really not disconnected and most likely, right, they are able to understand, right, how the world at large views them and, and their actions. Take me through some of the relationships that North Korea has with some of the other nations around the world. The most important relationship for North Korea is China. You know, I believe China is somewhere of 90 percent um, of their economic, right, both import and export. You know, they're their main supporter in the international community. And we saw that from the intelligence that we analyzed as well, that a lot of the uh, activity that we saw involved Chinese services, right? Like Baidu or Alibaba, right? Or transited China or involved people most likely physically located in China. Um, So China would be the, the main and the most important relationship for North Korea. 
We saw some other areas where, you know, our analysis demonstrated that there was likely a significant physical and virtual North Korean presence. Uh, India was another country where we saw a lot of activity to and from. It was about a fifth of all the activity we observed one time period of April through July of this year involved India in some way. And then there were a number of other countries we observed similar patterns of activity and North Korean internet behavior to and from and transiting. Um, those included uh, Malaysia, Nepal, Kenya, Mozambique, Indonesia, and uh, New Zealand. One of the observations you had was that North Korea wasn't uh, necessarily on top of security uh, for their own data. Right. I, initially, I had been surprised that only 1% of the activity that we saw during this whole time period was obfuscated or protected in any way. I think I had expected North Korean users might be more aware of uh, potential monitoring or, or concerned about that or their security. 99% of the activity you know, was just in the clear, no VPNs or VPS uh, not even SSL in most cases. Uh, so that was pretty interesting. Um, and that allowed us to gain some of the insights that we were able to gain. Do you have any notion for why more things aren't encrypted or, or obfuscated? I think it's most likely that the leaders and their families that are using this access are not concerned about monitoring, uh, either from their own government or from others. Um, it's possible they don't know a lot about VPN technologies, but I would think from what I saw and the level of integration that they have with the modern internet community, I would think they know about the technologies themselves. Another possibility could be that most VPNs you have to pay for, so they might not have easily accessible means of accessing the international financial system because most companies will probably not do business, you know, with like a North Korean bank or something like that. So, yeah, some theories, but I'm not 100% certain, I guess. Take us through some of the uh, the suspect activities that North Korea is up to. Sure. Um, the most suspect activity I found was something I just wasn't able to follow up on, but it was these sort of chains of uh, VPNs or VPS, virtual private server use. Some of these chains, you know, were multiple, multiple hops that I really became untraceable after a certain point. You know, all I could really see was the transit of large amounts of data um, in some of these chains. But again, that was a really, really small percentage of the total activity that we saw. So it was a small percent of the 1% of obfuscated activity. The other suspect activity had to do with and this in and of itself is not suspect, but uh, Bitcoin mining. On May 17th, North Koreans from their you know, domestic territorial internet uh, began conducting Bitcoin mining. Uh, before May 17th, there was not a single instance of mining or much interest in Bitcoin at all. And then on the 17th, it just increased exponentially. So the May 17th was around the time that you know, they might have realized it would have been difficult to get the money gained from the WannaCry attacks from their Bitcoin wallets, you know, that it might take a bit longer than they were hoping, you know, or they had realized you know, maybe it was another way to generate some 
cash for the regime. Um, but that was a really interesting start of activity that we saw. And the last one was we saw a lot of research into a number of foreign labs and research centers, large, large, large amounts of data transfers between uh, a number of Indian science and technology research centers and uh, Philippine government research centers. So it's not clear what, what was happening there, but certainly it looks like the organizations themselves and maybe their research or technologies uh, was certainly of interest to some North Koreans. And when you say transfers of large bits of data, is do you mean that the that data was being uh, taken without the owner's knowledge of it, or was the the data being shared? Uh, it's not clear. That's okay. why I had to just call it suspect, right? As opposed to malicious, <laughs> right? Sure. So, so what are the take homes from this? As you look at the the research, what are the things that you've learned? First, uh, you know, we've kind of learned from you know these two pieces. One, how to place. North Korean cyber activity into the broader North Korean approach to the world. Primarily, you know, North Korean leaders are not crazy. They're not isolated from the outside world. From, from a broader perspective, the types of activity that the international community is undertaking, uh, sanctions and pressure and stuff, you know, that we're pushing on North Korea may not be working to the degree that, you know, we would like it to. They're active and engaged participants in contemporary internet, both society and economy, and that some of our attempts to shut North Korean leadership particular off from the global economy don't appear to be successful, you know, from our research. You know, second, that there are other tools um, and techniques um, that we've identified through our research that we could use to pressure North Korea and, and the Kim regime, and that maybe we should focus our efforts going forward, not necessarily on territorial North Korea, right, but on sort of the larger diaspora that North Korea uses um, you know, through the global community to um, support their regime, right, both in terms of the criminal networks, also the cyber activity uh, that we're seeing. We tested a hypothesis that we had about a possible correlation between North Korean missile launches and tests and internet activity. Uh, you know that hypothesis had been out there in the, the sort of scholarly community and the North Korean community at large for a long time. And you know our data set was only three months, uh, so it's it's quite a small data set. You know, we didn't find a correlation necessarily between the levels of activity we saw and the tests. But as a hypothesis, it's something we're going to keep testing. We're going to keep, you know, collecting data um, and trying to find better ways to develop any type of, you know, indication and warning for a missile launch or a missile test. Our thanks to Priscilla Marucci for joining us. You can find the reports on North Korea in the blog section of the Recorded Future website at recordedfuture.com blog. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. And be sure to save the date for our fun, the 6th Annual Threat Intelligence Conference coming up in October in Washington, D.C. Attendees will gain valuable insight into threat intelligence best practices by hearing from industry luminaries, peers, and recorded future experts. 
Details are at recordedfuture.com slash rfun. That's R-F-U-N. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.